for uh, for the guys who are willing to to lead and uh, who have agreed to do that. It's been a, a great blessing to me. We're good. And um, we are going through um, the vast subject of knowing God, and we begin a quest, a journey, um, a trek um, back in the beginning of January, and I, and I shared that um, it is kind of like, for some of us, it's kind of like going to the ocean the first time, God being the ocean, that um, we may have talked about it, may have intellectually known about it, but never really experienced it, never really were there. Some of you might have been to the ocean, been on the beach, looking at the ocean, appreciating the ocean, but yet never stepping into the ocean. Some of you may have stepped into the ocean. You may have kind of done a little wading, you know, you kind of looking for the seashells and, you know, the little little tidbits of God that you can kind of find that are kind of fun, you know, the, the kind of fun stuff, the collectible stuff about God that are, are kind of nice, you know, you know the, the putting God in a box kind of thing, you know, rubbing the genie's lamp every once in a while, pulling it out and finding another shark's tooth, and, you know, maybe you, you find a little, you know, sand dollar or whatever, and, you know, you kind of look at the back of it, see the cross, and say, wow, it's another picture of Jesus, this is really cool, you know, and it's all fun stuff, but never really going to the next step of saying, I want to go a little deeper. See, because I don't know about you, but as a child, if you go to the ocean with your parents the first time, especially, right? When you go to the ocean, what do your parents normally tell you? Be careful. Be careful. Because the ocean is what? It's dangerous. It's powerful. It's not tame. And out there in the ocean, there are potentially undertoes. There are undercurrents that if you're not careful, they can what? They can suck you up and sweep you away. And so, you know, using the same illustration now, bringing it to God, saying, how are you going to bring that to God? There are some times, I think, that we, we treat God that way. We're kind of worried about if we go just a little bit too far into God, a little bit too far into this knowledge of God thing, that we may get what? We may get lost. We may get swept away. We may lose our little bit of what we once were. You know, I mean, we, if you get caught up, if you go out a little far when you're jumping those waves, all of a sudden you realize when you've gone out far enough, you know, where that, those different currents are, and you look back at the beach, what do you find? Well, sometimes, yeah, that could be a bad thing. But, but if, let's say you see the land. Where are you in proximity to where you went into water? You... you not just drift, yeah, you've been moved. Let's say the word, you've been moved, rather than drift. Because, in a sense, you didn't really drift, you were, you were swept. You, you, were, you were caught up and you were moved, and sometimes you don't even know it. Now, I remember from when, years ago, when um, Robert Garner and his two boys were out um, Tybee Island, um, they got caught up in an undertow, and they were really driven, and it was a tremendous um, ordeal. And uh, thank the Lord that they got back to, the, to land. Um, but there's a force that's in those oceans. There's a force in that current. And sometimes you can get driven where you don't expect to be taken. God's the same way. And I want to challenge you not to let go and let God. You know, I mean, that's the you got to be careful of that concept. But there is a place where we do have to let go of our preconceived notions of God and allow God to take us, if you would, through his word, according to truth, not just our feelings, not just emotions, but the truth of his word to find out more about himself. And one of the things we find out about God, as we're going to look at today, is that there are areas of God that are not comfortable. There are areas of God that we may get swept away a little bit. We may be fighting the undercurrents because what? 
It's not where I started from. It's not where I want to go. It's, you don't get it, God. I'm here just for the feeling of the salt water on my toes. You know, I've got a couple sores on my toes. Someone said that salt water would be good for it. You know, if you just stand in the ocean for a little bit, it would heal my feet. And so I'm just here to heal my feet, God. Now, I know it a, sounds like a really crass illustration, but some of our lives are kind of that crass, aren't they, when it comes to spiritual things? But then someone says, man, you've got to jump the waves a little bit. There is nothing like just jumping the waves. And so we go out to where it's at our, our midsection, and we jump the waves because we're still what? We're still in control. That's exactly right. We're still in control. I still haven't gotten to the point of buoyancy. Now, when, when you go out with your kids, though, right? Stand up for a second, Andrew. And I go to the place where my, my, my hips are, and I'm, I'm jumping, and Andrew's with me, right? For me, I'm in control. But for Andrew, he's what? He's, he's hanging on to Dad for dear life. Because when he jumps that wave, he's going, shoo! He's going. Go ahead, thanks, buddy. And, um, and then, peradventure, we dare to go to that armpit, shoulder height. And when that wet wave comes crashing in, it crashes in where? Above our heads. And you got to jump. And when you jump, you got to let go of control. The subject we're going to talk about today is one of those subjects, the sovereignty of God. Now, I've struggled at which angle to come into this, talking about God being the creator and, and the, the, the works of God, you know, the, that part of it, or to come in. And I, I just feel like, you know, we've, we've dealt with all the... the the technical sides, that there is a, a God, the existence of God, the exclusiveness of God, you know, how God has revealed himself in that manner. And now we begin to get into a little bit more about who God is, but this is still, if you would, for me, a technical side of God. This is not a, a part of God's attributes. What's God like? This isn't a, a, a part, a role of God. He's the creator, he's the savior, he's the judge. For me, where I start this thing is because this is paramount along with the technical side that there is a God. And that is because there is a God, and he is God, and he is God alone, therefore it makes sense, it should be a no-brainer, that he is what? He's all reigning. He is sovereign over all the things that he has ever created. But the interesting thing is, that that's not the case in Christendom today. It's not a no-brainer. This is a subject of great debate. Not just in the world. For the world, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer. He's not in control. He's not sovereign. If you have a God, he's only that God that we're talking about where we're putting our, our, our toes in the water just a little bit and we're just playing and we just want a God on the side who just is convenient to us whenever we want him and we bring him in. But if you have gone into the water... If you have started to experience the, the waves crashing in and you're starting to, to feel the surge and, and you're starting to enjoy it, this takes on a different picture now. Because now as we get into this concept of the sovereignty of God, it really gets to the core of what the world is struggling with but has suppressed. And that is the concept of control. Who's ultimately going to be in control of your life? Who's ultimately in control of the affairs of men? Who's ultimately in control of the things that are going on in history? In this, this decision, this is going to be so far-reaching into everything you believe. Whether you are God-centered or whether you're man-centered. Whether you're God-focused or you're man-focused. Who in the very, very core of everything, determines, quote-unquote, fate. Who determines what's coming about tomorrow? Who determines what happened yesterday? I know that there are things that I'm going to share that are going to cause frustration in, the, in this message, which is going to go over two weeks now, from probably both sides. 
there are probably people here that are strong on the sovereignty of God's side to what I think is a fatalistic side beyond what God teaches in his word. And there are probably people here who are strong on the man-centered side, which I would then say are, is, are very weak on the God's sovereignty side, which I think as well becomes fatalistic because man can't control anything and man can't accomplish anything. And so my desire is not to say that I'm necessarily, I'm 100% right in what I'm sharing here. Okay? Could I be wrong? I'm a, I'm a fallible individual. But my desire is to start with the word of God. Draw it from his truth. The things that he shared about his sovereignty from his word. And then make the applications and bring it out. And so I, I ask you, kind of like the dad, and I, not, again, not pushing myself and pumping myself up and saying I'm, I'm so much better, but almost like the dad bringing you out into the water. And I might be able to go a little bit deeper than some of you. Some of you might be able to go deeper than me. You're taller than I am, okay? In, in the Lord, if you would. But if, if you're here in, in, in some of the places that, as I start walking out there, if this starts to become uncomfortable for you, I just ask you to, to hang on and enjoy the surge that's God. We want to talk quickly today about the definition of God's sovereignty. What, is, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Then we want to talk about the dominion of God's sovereignty. What is he sovereign over? And then finally, we want to look at the demonstration of God's sovereignty. And clearly we're not going to look at all of those things. We're only going to be able to, to look at pieces of it. And today we're only going to look at one piece of the four that I want to bring out. And all those pieces that we're going to look at, and I'll mention this later, are all going to be man-centered things. Okay? How does this apply to me? You know, how, how, does this, how does this step on my toes, if you would? You know, how, how do I have to grapple with this issue of God being sovereign? So let's start, excuse me, first of all, with the definition of, of sovereignty. Sovereignty, by itself, and by definition, is having the supreme, supremacy of role or authority. So you are the one who reigns supremely, the one who reigns overall. You and to reign means to rule, to, to have the power, to have the authority. Do, 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 make sense? Okay. So by saying then that God is sovereign, we're saying that God as a whole has the supremacy of rule and authority. God has absolute and infinite rule and authority over everything in the universe. Okay, so stop for a moment. You don't have to say verbally yes or raise your hands or whatever, but I want to ask you, right off the bat, would you agree with that statement? Would you agree that God has absolute, absolute, and infinite rule and authority over everything, everything in the universe? I mean, that includes you. You know, every one of us is in a universe that includes us, right? Would you agree with that statement? This is key. This is really paramount to, I believe, your faith and your really knowing who God is. God is under no rule or law. This is a negative side of looking at this. He's under no rule or law outside of his own person. He may do as he pleases and in accordance to his Attributes. Now, I add that because I know there's going to be someone who's going to sit here and tell me that he can't go outside of his attributes, so I understand all that. But the fact is that God being sovereign, being over everything, that he reigns over everything, that God doesn't give an answer, he doesn't give an account to you, he doesn't give an account to anybody, it doesn't matter what you think the Bible says, it only matters what he wrote it to mean, and that he can do very well as he pleases whenever he chooses to do it. Do you believe that? Now, I understand it's in accordance with his attributes that he has revealed to us. But there are times when we put God in our little box and we define all the things about God and we say, no, God can't do that because it's in my little box. And there are times when we read then in his word and we go, oh, that doesn't fit with what I understand about this attribute. It doesn't matter what you understand about the attribute. It only means, it only cares about what God defines in that attribute. 
again, I am a sinful being. I have a deceitful heart. And though I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and though he has washed my heart, yet I still know that in the word of God that there is a war that's going on in my members. And that there is a battle going on between the lust of my flesh and the spirit. And the spirit is against the flesh, and the flesh is against the spirit. And we're told by Paul that, therefore, I cannot do the things that I, I would. And so, because there's this battle going on, I don't always understand everything the way I should understand it. And if, there, if everybody who was a believer did understand everything the way they should understand it, there wouldn't be all these denominations out there. you agree with that? Okay. So, not a one of you, as I've already admitted about myself, has the, has the in on 100% knowledge of God. So get rid of it if you think you got it. Because if you think you know everything there you, know, you need to know about God, you've just proven how much you don't know about God. So the fact is, we're told in God's word, that he can do anything he pleases. Really? It says that in God's word? Yeah, it really does. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, But our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. In fact, this is really interesting, but there was a man many, many years ago who was the king of kings, the Lord of lords, not Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, but an individual who was really called the king of kings. He was the king of the, of the known world at the time. He was the most powerful man on the earth. God had chosen him to be that, that person and, the, the, and to, to bring the nations into subjection. And he got a little full of himself. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Nebuchadnezzar. And, and when he became full of himself, God said, listen, through Daniel, if you don't gain control of this thing, I'm going to make you like an ox. And I'm going to make you go out there and eat from the grass until you finally get a, a, a figuring out of who I am when it comes to sovereignty, when it comes to you just a peon, and I really am the king. And after that had occurred, because that did happen, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had to go out there and eat like an ox for seven years, and after those seven years of, of wandering out there, when he finally got a grip of himself, he recorded a testimony of what he learned. And Nebuchadnezzar says, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Or, what have you done? God gives no account to anyone. Because he is God. If he had to give an account to anybody, then that individual or that thing would be God. And so, always the philosophical question comes back, what was, what was before God? And the answer is, there is nothing before God. God is the beginning. God is everything there is. And it's a mind-boggling concept. But because God is God, and we've already defined that God was God, and we looked at the existence of God, we looked at the exclusiveness of God, we know that who he is, we know that he is God, and because he is God, he's God. That sounds pretty dumb, doesn't it? But in being God, then, he is over all other things. Nebuchadnezzar had to go walking around like an ox for seven years to finally come to that conclusion. What's it going to take for us? Dominion is to rule, exercise, control, or have sovereignty over something. God is sovereign over everything in the universe. We've just decided that, right? Hence, his dominion extends over everything. That kind of makes sense, right? Because God is sovereign, he reigns over all things, that means that the extent of his reigning, his dominion, is the entirety of the universe. Okay? You say, okay, that's a no-brainer. Why are we even talking about that? Because I believe, in this concept of dominion, that sovereignty does not mean, on the negative side, that God is a puppeteer. 
that God does not control us like marionettes or puppets. So that every movement that I make comes because God decreed it to be so. That God put this little finger going this way, and so therefore my leg went up. And then my thumb went up, and and that leg, and so now all of a sudden I look like I'm in the middle of the, the Sound of Music, you know, okay. And so if you ever watch Sound of Music, you got to get the picture of what that looks like, okay. And they're moving things around. God, as well, is not a despot, though a despot has all reign and all power, all authority. A despot does it tyrannically. Because God reigns in accordance with all of His other attributes, which we haven't gotten to. He's not, he's not a tyrannical despot. Okay? And those are things that we worry about as we come into this. But in this concept of dominion, then, since God has all these areas, I believe, and I think I'm going to, because it comes from the Word of God, I believe, okay, and we're going to look at this, that God has chosen in His infinite wisdom and in His sovereignty to give dominion to man in many areas. How do I believe that? Because he said so. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 145, we read, All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, your dominion, endures throughout all generations. In Genesis Genesis chapter 1, 26-28, when we read of the creation of man, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and in our, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, you can read this a couple different ways. And I'm not saying I want to change the way you think, because either way it applies here. But look at what God says. Let us make man in our what? Our image. Put the semicolon there. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We've talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the spirituality of man being one of the, the proofs that there is a God. That plants have a body. They, they, they eat, they drink, they breathe, right? And so they're a living thing. They have, have body. They have flesh, but not the same flesh as man, but they do have that. Animals, on the other side, have a, a body, they have a soul. They eat, they drink, they breathe, they communicate. But you've never seen a group of squirrels getting together and have a prayer meeting. You never saw a group of cats getting together and have a, have a worship service. Now, I understand that all creation praises God, but not in the manner where it's a volitional decision. It's not an act of the what? Will. Man, on the other side, are the only ones who are created in the image of God. And we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed into man the ruach, the spirit, the breath of life. And that man was made in his image, and God is a spirit, so therefore man is what? Spirit. But I believe that God being made in the image and likeness of God means that we have, in a sense, those same sort of attributes. Even angels were not declared to be made in the image and likeness of God, though they are what? Spirit beings. Interesting concept, isn't it? And so it goes beyond the concept of us just being spirit beings to be made in the image and likeness of God. I think one of the things coming from this passage that very clearly that delineates us from all other created beings, all other created beings, is that God has given us the privilege of dominion. And we're told in this passage that he has given us dominion over everything that's on the earth. All other created things are under our dominion. Now this word for dominion is the same word that is used for Solomon reigning over all the nations that he reigned over. For Nebuchadnezzar. For these kings to to reign. So we reign, in a sense, sovereignly, if you would, small s, not big s. We'll say the big s is for who? God. But we only reign, in a sense, that way, because why? Because God led us. Do you get it? Because God still is what? Sovereign. Now, I want you to think about this. 
President Obama if we had more of a monarchial role. Okay, now I understand because we're going to get into, we're, we're going to debate this thing because of the Congress and because of all of this. Okay, but hang with me here for a moment. Make it more of a monarchial role. Okay? He has supreme authority in our land, if you would. I understand we have checks and balances. Okay? But he, in a sense, can delegate some of that authority to his cabinet members, yes? And all of a sudden, they then have authority. Were they elected officials? They weren't. They were appointed. And he had the authority, if you would, being the supreme authority. Now, I understand that he's not because we voted him in, but the minute we voted him in, we did what? We gave him that authority, right? Okay? And we didn't do that with God. God just is God. But, but take the same analogy. But he turns around then, and he gives part of that dominion that is really his overall dominion, and he gives part of that dominion to each of these cabinet members. Does that make sense? Their dominion is confined to the area in which he's given to them. But with the dominion becomes what? Authority. They can reign. In fact, he's chosen to call them what? Czars. <laughs> you know, and we buck at that a little bit because we think of the term czar and we go, oh, that's too much power. Well, they had it anyway. You know, it's just that he's putting a name with them that they really, they really have. In Psalm 8, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and a son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, Yahweh, our Adonai, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This concept of dominion within the sovereignty of God should be something that brings great worship exuding from you. That God isn't the puppeteer. That God isn't the tyrannical despot who says, no, you shall eat spam tonight. And tomorrow night. And the next night. But God allows you to eat whatever you want to eat. Unless, what? For some reason, he believes that tonight you should eat spam. See, uh, President Obama gave that authority to that that cabinet member. But what if the cabinet member comes up to him and says, I think that um, the cabinet member, the Secretary of Education, comes up to him and says, I think based upon test results and everything else, we're, we're really doing a poor job anyway. I think that we should just cut school back to three months a year. It would save us a whole lot of money. We wouldn't have transportation costs. We wouldn't have to be paying teachers. And, and probably the test results would be the same. And I don't mean that as a slam, okay? Let's just t- take that, okay? I mean, I mean, the parents are saying, no, no, okay? I would hope that President Obama would, would hear that recommendation. And he would say what? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks. In fact, I might be looking for another Secretary of Education. Anyways, but... He has the right to do what now? To overrule and to override that decision because ultimately he was sovereign and and had dominion over that area anyway. He just allowed that individual to exercise some dominion in that area. What an awesome God it is to me that doesn't feel that he has to treat me like the marionette where my He's moving my legs and moving my feet and moving my hands and moving my jaw and, and, and making me speak whatever he wants me to speak at every moment. But that God can allow in his sovereignty man to have a dominion. And if we understand that God has dominion and God has reign and rule and he chooses to use the same word about man, think about this. How can we wash out what he's saying about man and not wash out what he's saying about himself. Do you get it? If dominion doesn't mean dominion when it comes to man, and if dominion doesn't mean dominion when it comes to the kings, how do we know dominion means dominion when it comes to God? 
if I'm getting way off base, somebody help me out here, okay? I just, I don't get it. So for me, I see this balance that's here. Not that man is in control, but that man has the privilege of authority and reign given to him by God, but that God still exercises what? The right to overrule anytime he chooses. The demonstration of God's sovereignty. We're going to look at four areas here. We're going to look at the demonstration of God's sovereignty in the governance of man, in the creation of man, in the affairs of man, in the salvation of man. And again, remember what I said before, that there's going to be four areas where I think that clearly there are innumerable areas where his sovereignty is demonstrated. But areas that address me, address us, that are man-focused, if you would, and, and how does this come about, and how do I blend these together? Let me get something. Is the block the light? Because when I move away, it, it <laughs> so can you, can you help me out there? Okay. All right. And so we're going to look today at the governance of man. The, the, this next three we're going to look at um, beginning next week. Sorry about that, Lawrence, but that was that was driving me bonkers every time I looked at you. It was either Shekinah glory or. <laughs> So, today we're going to look at the governance of man. All right. Did you? Okay. Can you take the next one down? Thanks. All right. Good. That's good. All right. Romans 13, verse 1 and 2, the whole Romans 13, 1 to 7, has to deal with us dealing with governing authorities. But the first two verses are the foundation for everything that's stated. And what is Paul... Paul, but God speak, I believe God speaking through Paul, what does he state? Let every soul, that means every what? Every person, okay? Every person be subject to the governing authorities. Who are those? The rulers. Any authority who is what? Governing. Every, any authority who is governing. Now, I want you to understand it. It's not just talking about the, the, the Caesar, but in, in the Roman world. But it was talking to those who were underneath Caesar as well. And so coming to ours, we're not just talking about President Obama, but we're talking about the state governments. We're talking about the local governments. We're talking about your mom and dad. Okay? That's a concept. Now, understand that right now it's talking more governmental, but still they're governing authorities. So let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from who? God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That means that God has given them what? Dominion. Dominion. You get it? Go back to the same concept. God has, has extended his dominion to man and given certain individuals, certain groups, certain whatever, the privilege of dominion and, and to rule. Okay? So there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now it's not just a matter that God said, hey, man, you know, I'm going to take my hands off a little bit. No, he didn't say I'm going to take my hands off a little bit. See, without the next statement, we can almost say, well, God took his hands off, and we just do it now. We, you know, that, that God said, you guys can have dominion over these areas, so you go handle it now. No, God says, I'm going to allow you all to have a little bit of dominion over yourself, but I'm going to do what? I'm going to appoint the one who's going to be it. You all think that you go to the, 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 the booths and, and, and decide things, whether how many hanging chads are there, or whether you've got to go digital, or whether the, the, the cards are reading right, or whatever. But you know what? I oversee all that. I can hang any chad I want. I can cause any chad not to be punched that I want. I can cause the, 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 the fiber cables to, to not transport the information that I want. Or I can cause it to be double counted if I want. Or I can cause somebody to be sick and not go to the polls and vote if I want. Now, isn't that getting a little bit on our toes, huh? And we thought we picked them. Well, in a sense, we what? We do. This is that, that, that part where it's going to be touchy-feely here on us, right? It's going to be parts that we don't like. Because God says to us, we have what? We have dominion. And we're supposed to exercise dominion. 
But God does what? He oversees the exercise of our dominion. And when we, as the cabinet member, if you would, come up before him and we say, okay, God, here's the one that we want to be our king. He has the sovereign right to say what? That's fine. Or what? No. I appoint him. So, in a sense, who, who determined that Barack Obama, the senator of Illinois, would be the next president of the United States? Man or God? And the answer is both. But ultimately, who was the one who oversaw the decision? God. We in the dominion that God allowed us, according to this, according to the dominion that God has given man, that he allowed man to make a decision. And whether God overrode our decision or God allowed our decision, I can't tell you. Does that make sense? I can just tell you that God either allowed it or caused it. And, over, and regardless of which way that is, God is still what? Sovereign over that decision. You may have been praying for somebody else to be elected. And you may feel that what? God didn't what? Answer your prayers. But you know what? God doesn't have to answer your prayers. Again, he's not accountable to you. There might have been other people in the, in, in the country praying for President Obama to become president. And they're thinking what? He answered our prayers. And we sit there and we, we, we debate everything. We decide everything about my relationship with God with, based upon how he answers my prayers. And so my prayers become me-focused rather than God-focused. I really don't care about what God's will is. I just care about what my will is. Rather than Jesus in the garden saying, you know, Father, I really don't want to go through what I know is going to happen in the next 12 to 24 hours. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. God, I really want a strong believer in the presidency who is not going to be fearful of bringing about great revival in our land. But God says, no, you don't get it. That's, that wouldn't help you out. What you need to do is you guys need to come to, and I don't mean this as a statement about President Obama, okay? Uh, regardless, of, regardless of who the president is. But God may say, turn around and say, I think you guys need to come to the, to the rock bottom. I think you need to come to the end of yourself. Because you're, you're living in a land with houses that you didn't build, with, with cisterns that you didn't dig, and with vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And you've eaten all and you're full and you think you are, you're it. And you're not it and you need to find out that you're not it and you need to be brought back to, to nothing. So however God chooses to do that, God can do that. But God says that the authorities that exist are appointed by him. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, ooh, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I didn't say it. God said it. I understand the concept of civil disobedience. But civil disobedience must only go, must only happen, and I feel a little bit like Martin Luther King Jr. here, okay? Can only occur when man has done what? Has defied the sovereign authority and right of God and have called on you, God's child, who are a citizen of heaven, a citizen of his full domain and dominion in his kingdom, to do that which would be wrong or illegal, if you would, a sin, in the eyes of the ultimate law in dominion. Did I totally lose you? That's recorded in the Bible as this statement. We ought to obey God rather than men. And so, if you feel that I have got to be, a, I have got to do, be civilly disobedient, you better be able to go to God and say, God, is because you said in your word that what they're asking me to do is wrong. Because if it's not there, if you cannot place it upon, before God, then by disobeying 
the ordinance of man, you're disobeying the ordinance of God. Because the dominion that man has is only dominion that was given to him by the sovereign dominion of God. Are you tracking with all that? So, this happens every once in a while, and people don't like when I use this as an illustration, but I use it anyway. The man um, out in Kansas, um, Roper, something like that, who was the, the one who shot the, the abortion doctor, went before, was tried either this week or last week, and would not back down from what he did, stated his opposition to abortion, and was willing to take the consequence. Now, I don't know whether he believes that he was told by God to do that. Okay? And, and, and even if he claimed it, I wouldn't be able to tell you whether God really told him to do it. Does that make sense? Okay? But let's be straight. And I've got to preach this message and state these things before the um, hate crimes bill comes in so that I, I don't have to go to jail for saying this, right? Publicly. Is abortion in obedience or disobedience to the declared word of God? All together. Oh, you're still together. All together. Ready? Disobedience. It's sin before God. It is an atrocity that we have allowed upon this land. Now, is shooting somebody who is unarmed and not fighting against you murder? Well, in a sense, yes. That's exactly right, Daniel. That's where I'm going to go. Yes. According to the, the, the courts of this land, what that man did was murder. Okay? What the abortion doctor is doing is not murder. It's a medical procedure. But I would submit to you the name Ehud. They may know who Ehud is? Ah, he was a left-handed man who killed the king who was reigning over Israel. Not an Israel king, but he was, I want to say, Midianite, and I'm probably wrong. So, anyways, I'm not sure which country it was that was reigning over. It might have been the Ammonites. Anyways, but he went in and he killed Eglon, I believe it was Eglon, who was the king at that time. The, the, the knife stuck in his belly and it got lost. And, and, and when Ehud went in, he locked the doors and his servants felt like he must have been um, having his feet covered, which means he was going potty. And so they didn't want to disturb him. And then when it became embarrassing too long to not disturb him, they broke the doors down and found out that their sovereign king was laying dead on the floor. And by that time, Ehud had opportunity to escape and gather the, the troops of Israel and start the, the uprise. Now, what Ehud did was disobedient to the civil authorities. Does that make sense? But what Ehud did was submit to what God's will for his life was, and that he obeyed God, the sovereign rather than the one who only had dominion. Are you tracking with me here? Now, I'm not saying every one of you, I'm not rising up an army to go kill abortion doctors, okay? I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is, if that man believes that God called him like Ehud to go do that act, I'm not his judge. According to the civil laws that, that are over us right now, the dominion that's here, he deserves what? The death penalty. And you know what I rejoice in the most? He didn't balk like the guy in Florida years ago and try to start claiming temporary insanity. But if God had called him to do something, he was willing to do what? Like the prophets. To submit to whatever came. 
We believe that Isaiah was that individual in Hebrews chapter 11 who was sawn asunder. He was placed into a log, and then the log was sawn in half. Jeremiah was placed into a cistern with the mud up to his knees and hips until he was removed, and then he was taken as a prisoner to Egypt where he died. Why? Because he proclaimed the word of God against what the, 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 the civil authorities wanted at that time. Jesus talks about all the prophets who were destroyed because they stood for the truth of God. Can I state in the subject? Because they stood for the sovereignty of God over the sovereignty of man. Because they understood whose citizenship they really were a part of. And though they understood, Isaiah said, you know, um, you know, Woe is me, for I have, what, seen God, you know, and I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And, and, and God sends the angel with the tongs and the, and the coals to, to burn his lips, to sear his lips, to cleanse his lips. And God says, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I mean, man, I've seen you. You've cleansed me. I mean, I want to go. I want to serve you. Doesn't it sound like us sometimes? I want to do it. And God turns around and says, okay, great. Now that you're going, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put a message in your mouth that people ain't going to listen. Boy, what an exciting ministry, God. Thank you so much. At least God didn't say what? I'm going to put a message in your mouth. People aren't going to listen to you, and then they're going to stuff you in the log and saw in your half. At least he didn't say that part of it. I think that might have been a little bit too much for Isaiah at that point. <laughs> he might have been running out of the throne room in his mind, you know? Sometimes God's mercy doesn't show us what's going to happen weeks down the road. But even if God would show me all that, as Jesus in the flesh, being God in the flesh, knew, would I still say, nevertheless, not my will, but your sovereign will be done? Because ultimately, what? Your sovereign will will be done. God's sovereign will will be accomplished regardless of whether man chooses to submit or not. Because God can do anything he pleases. And his counsels, his directives, his decisions and his will will never be overridden by any man or any other thing. Even though Satan may declare, I want to be the Most High God, guess what? He never will be. He's only created being. In Psalm 33, we read, Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So when it all boils down to it, God says red, man says blue. Guess what? It's red. If God says, you can decide, and man says, blue, I like blue, God says, cool, blue's, blue's fine, blue it is. I mean, he brought all the animals before, before Adam to do what? To name them. Now, you've got to make a decision. Did God put into Adam, you know, when the elephant came past, and no, we're going to assume that that Adam, for a moment, spoke in English, but, you know, he didn't call. Just so you know, I mean, God, Adam did not call the elephant an elephant. He didn't speak English. The best we can figure out is he sp- spoke some um, original form of Hebrew, some Ugaritic form, you know. We joke about Hebrew as well, but he probably didn't even speak Hebrew at that point. It was even before that, okay? And so, is your hand going up for a question? or No, okay. So, so God didn't just do one of these things to Adam and say, okay, Brandon Pass, what do you want to call it? I want to call... You know, he didn't do that. Adam looked at it and probably called it long nose. You know? I don't know what he called it. Fat belly. You know? Whatever. And he brought past the horse and he called it nay. You know? Saw the bluebird. That was an easy one, right? It's a what? Blue bird. Blue bird. That's easy. Okay? But what if, again, according to this, right? Adam says, bluebird. And God says, that's too generic. I got a lot of bluebirds. I want to call this a... Whose decision would override? God's decision would override. God knows 
the plans of your heart. But his decision always overrides your decision. We're told in the book of Proverbs that like the rivers of water, God moves the heart of a king. And that's something to think about. You ought to be praying for President Obama. You ought to be praying for Vice President Biden. You ought to be praying for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Not just for their salvations, if that's where you're at on that. Praying for them to have godly wisdom. Maybe God to bring godly counsel about them. You ought to be praying for the cabinet members. You ought to be praying for, for our governor, Sonny Burdue. You ought to be praying for your congressmen and senators. You ought, if you're in Columbia County, you ought to be praying for the, those who are on the uh, commission. If you're in Richmond County, you ought to be praying for uh, the mayor of Copenhaver. Am I right? Yeah. Deke. It's easier to say Deke. So that God works through them, that God will be working those things together, that those individuals will have godly decisions. Because God does, in his sovereignty, allow those decisions, even though there may not be the decisions that he would have made. We see that in the book of Revelation. Do you remember that, as we went through the book of Revelation, and we saw the seals and the trumpet judgments, quote-unquote judgments, that really what they appear to be is just God saying to man, you want to be God? You go ahead. I'll allow you, in your dominion, to make those decisions. God's not forcing those. God's not causing us to destroy ourselves. He's letting us destroy ourselves. Do you get it? Turn with me to 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings 19. Now you understand why. Wow. We may end it here, huh? 2 Kings. Let's go to 2 Kings 19 quickly. In 2 Kings chapter 19... There's a long section here in 15 to 37 that I want us to look at. And this has to deal with um, God's demonstration of God's sovereignty and the governance of man, specifically in respect to the rulers of the nation of Assyria. We looked at the rulers of the nations in general. But in 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings 19, 15 to 37, we read, Then Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, you're not just the God of Israel, you're the God of all all the kingdoms. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Yahweh, the kings of of Assyria, have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they weren't gods at all, but the works of men's hands, men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Yahweh, our God, I pray, save us from his hand. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh Elohim. You are the sovereign God, you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which Yahweh has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the heights of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to, to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times... That I formed it. Now, understand what Yahweh's saying to him. He says, he's talking to Sennacherib, and Sennacherib thinks he's doing all these wonderful things. He's drying up the land. He's going to cut down all these trees. And God says, you ain't got it. You think you're hot stuff. You think you're big stuff here because of what you've done, but you don't get it. I'm above and beyond you. Don't you get it that long before you were even a gleam in your mother's eye, I made all this. And so you're not attacking Israel. You're attacking me. You're messing with me right now. 
And he goes on, he says, Did you not hear long ago how I made it in ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as gates, grass of the field, and green herb, and as grass in the housetops, and, and, and grain blighted before it is grown. What is God saying there? I made them weak. I made you everything you are. You are just a hammer in my hand. I wanted to bring punishment to these, these countries, and so I chose to use you. And now all of a sudden you think you're what? You're hot stuff. You think you're it. You think you're the hand. You're just a hammer. You're nothing. The reason that you walked over those people is because I weakened them. I gave you this privilege. Verse 27, but I know your dwelling place. Bring it into current vernacular. I know where you live. I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in in your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose, in my bridle, in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. Because the king's heart is in the hand of God. And he can do with it whatever he chooses. Verse 29. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat of the fruit of them. In the rem- this is talking to Israel. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of the Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts, shall do this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow here, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mount against it. Now, this is incredible, isn't it? I mean, Sennacherib is just walking, just walking through the world. I mean, nobody is able to stand against him. And and Yahweh says, God says, don't worry about it. He's not even coming here. I'm turning him back. Wow. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, says Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of Yahweh went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 soldiers, people. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib king of Assyria, departed and went away, returning home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, since God knew where he lived and his coming and going, it came to pass as he was worshipping in the temple of Nisroch, a false god, that his sons Adrimelech and Sharezer struck him down with a sword, and then they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Etzarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. We're not going to be able to visit these others. I challenge you to read them. Jeremiah 32 and 51 deal with the nation of Babylonia and how God stated in, in 32 that he was going to cause Babylon to be the ruling power. He was putting it into their power. He was going to do for them like he did with Sennacherib. He was going to use them. But in 51, he says, okay, now you've gotten a little high and mighty. Now I'm going to destroy you. Because he's the one who what? He reigns over the dominions of man. Though he allows man to have dominion, he's still a sovereign over all. And so it doesn't matter what the nations decide to do. It only matters what God chooses. And in Daniel chapter 6, that is um, in the days of Darius, the king of Persia, and how God as well worked within the Medo-Persia empire. I could have used passages talking about Pharaoh. Very clearly, we know about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then we're also told that Pharaoh, what? Hardened his own heart. As we dip our toe again into this ocean, and particularly this part of maybe the high tides, <laughs> if you would, what's your view of the sovereignty of God? Is it, was it, consistent with the testimony that God has given to us in his word? The sovereignty of God should be a great provocation for worship. And so does focusing on God's sovereignty give you a greater desire to glorify him? Or does it give you a little bit of willies? Does it cause you to have a little bit of fatalisticness? There's no fatalism in the sovereignty of God. God still wants you to make your decisions within the dominion that he's given to you.
He reserves the right, though, to do what? To overrule any decision that you ever make. If I truly believe that God is sovereign, it will be reflected in my life. How does your life reflect that God reigns sovereignly over the affairs of men? Now, we're going to talk about the affairs of men more next week. But the fact is, how it applies to me today is, very clearly, as I look at this nation, as I look at the way the world is turning, is God in control? And the answer is yes. God still reigns sovereignly over everything that is in the universe. Man cannot do anything apart from what God either causes or allows in his infinite, wise, loving, holy, just, sovereign reign over all things. Now, clearly, that should mean that I can walk without anxiety, if you would, because I know that whatever is happening, God knows about. And as we look at it next week, this is a little foretaste. God loves me with that everlasting love. And he's still sovereign over my life, too. And he can shield from me anything he chooses not to allow to touch me. Regardless. And so when Jeremiah was thrown into that cistern with the mud up to his knees and hips, God said what? No, it's not my time. It's not your time. And he sent somebody to pull him up out of that pit. It should give us the desire to glorify him, for he alone is the sovereign. Let's sing um, Our God Reigns.